Hey, everybody, Mike here. So glad to be a part of your journey, whatever uh, you're doing, wherever you're at, and uh, honored to be invited into your life, um, whether it's to help you go to sleep or to motivate you to work out <laughs> or uh, for any other reason, grateful uh, that we get to do this together and form a community together. And so welcome to the Vox Podcast. If you're new, uh, Vox is the Latin word for voice. and um, we operate under the conviction that Jesus is God's voice to the world, but is vastly misrepresented by the subculture that bears his name. And uh, so we work uh, not only to give permission for people to deconstruct their faith, but uh, we also want to encourage sort of gentle reconstruction uh, of faith around Jesus and away from um, the Christian subculture, at least in America, that has, at least in evangelicalism, um, that has come up around and been built up around Jesus. And so, there's a uh, there's work that needs to be done. It's a project that must be undertaken to kind of put faith back together once it's separated out from politics, certain kinds of politics, from uh, certain kinds of understandings of the world and of God and so on. So, um, uh, it is a wonderful privilege to be able to get to do this. Again, thank you so much for those of you who go onto iTunes, write a review, like, subscribe, all that stuff is hugely important. It keeps our podcast out in front of people. And uh, for those of you that support us on Patreon, thank you. Patreon is a kind of a Kickstarter for artists, I'm, I consider myself an artist, or, or at least because I'm part of Patreon, I can. Um, Patreon, you have different levels of gifts and you have different levels of rewards that uh, you can sign up for. So if you're interested in that, uh, uh, Vox, go to, the, go to patreon.com and then look up the Vox podcast or my name and you'll track us down there. Now, um, we've got some questions trying to uh, trying to catch up a little bit on the email. Uh, this comment from Mike in Portland, uh, subject line, irregardless. Message or question, Mike writes, irregardless isn't a word. Agreed. It, it, he says it might be now, but it was a word that I used in the uh, heat of the moment during a rant. And you're absolutely right, it's not a word. But then he says, neither is boughten. Just saying, it's not a word either. <laughs> now, I don't remember using the word boughten, but um, but I take your meaning. Uh, fair point. Uh, I repent as a highly trained professional speaker. I repent of using the word irregardless and the word boughten, neither of which are real words. Um, and uh, and so I, I re- accept your your rebuke, and will operate now in humble repentance. My wife is uh, so so. It's not just Mike chiming in, but my wife is a is a grammar Nazi, as they say, and um, it's tough. It's tough to be around. Um, uh, she's always correcting our children. It's it's funny. I'm I'm thankful that I escape for whatever reason. Uh, second question. Um, let's see. With the recent news of a televangelist asking for donations for a fifty-four million dollar private jet, it seems as if the prosperity gospel is alive and well. Now, if you're not familiar with that term. Prosperity gospel, gospel is a word that is used in the Bible for the kind of the major announcement of the Christian faith, that Jesus, that in Jesus, the Messiah has come, God has walked among us, 
God has lived, died, has risen again, ascended into the heavens, sent um, his Holy Spirit, the spirit of Jesus into Jesus's followers and so on. Um, the prosperity gospel is a perversion of that, which, you know, shockingly caters to uh, American capitalism and consumerism by saying that if you invest your money um, or your faith uh, Godward in very specific directions, in tangible directions, God will return the favor in very tangible ways. So, so it does seem when anytime you have somebody announcing, you know, their need for a private plane, my local church recently had a sermon on the practice of tithing. Now, a tithe in the Old Testament was a tenth. So, it was uh, commanded of the Jewish people that they would give a tenth of all of their produce. So, whatever they brought in, whether it was uh, fish, whether it was agriculture, whether it was animals, um, whatever it was, a tenth of that would go to the temple for very specific reasons. Um, and uh, but so a tithe today, we obviously don't tithe in animals or produce, but we tithe obviously in money. Um, and so so tithing is a, kind of a weird subject in the church because the person usually preaching is living off of the tithes of the people who are giving. And so it's in the preacher's vested interest to really overmake this point and to kind of have God's authority behind it. So anyway, um, my local church recently had a, a sermon on the practice of tithing and defined it as giving 10% of your income to the local church you attend. This message was confusing to me as the teacher repeated throughout that if we tithe, then God will bless us, referring to Malachi 3.10 as support for his claim. Malachi, uh, in short, is a, is a, um, uh, a, a, it's a rebuke of uh, the nation of Israel. Um, they're, they're giving paltry offerings. They're not giving their best uh, to God and to the temple. Um, God says, test me and see if I don't bless you back. You know, this because tithing obviously is an act of faith that God will provide. And um, he says, test me and see if I don't bless you uh, in very tangible ways. And then he goes on to list um, some very specific things he'll do. Now, this is a very, very obvious and favored passage among prosperity teachers. Um, so he, this pastor refers to Malachi 3.10 to support his claim. However, it seems that frequently when the gospel is taught, the message tends to be that there's nothing you can do to earn God's blessing. So how is it that you can't earn God's blessing except when it comes to tithing? Give 10% to the church and you will be blessed. How do you reconcile these two thoughts? I don't believe the pastor had malicious intent when preaching these ideas, but it's hard for me not to draw comparisons to this teaching and the prosperity gospel taught by wealthy televangelists with bad intentions. The pastor also referred to Matthew 23, 23 as justification that the Old Testament rules around tithing are supported by Jesus, though no longer technically the law. Um, this, this is a passage where Jesus is condemning the the Pharisees, and, and there's a big backstory on, on the Pharisees, but he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth or you tithe a tenth of your spices, your mint, dill, and cumin, 
but you neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, without neglecting the former, tithing. You blind gods, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. So Jesus, Jesus is talking about how the Pharisees were so exacting on tiny matters of the law, but they neglected the weighty matters of justice, mercy, kindness. Uh, of the law. And um, and so in this, though, he says you should have practiced the latter, the weightier matters, while not neglecting the former, the tithing. And thus, uh, so the argument goes, Jesus here teaches that we should be uh, people that tithe too. So uh, the questioner goes on, the pastor also refers to Matthew 23, 23 as justification that the Old Testament rules around tithing are supported by Jesus, though no longer technically the law. I thought this was odd, as I usually interpret Matthew 23 as the Pharisees missing the point and not as Jesus telling his followers to tithe. What does Jesus actually want us to do regarding tithing? It's not that I don't believe the local church I support shouldn't be supported financially by those attending. It's just hard for me to say no matter what, attendees should give 10% of their income to the local church. I think this hard and fast rule could bring shame to those who can't afford it and drive newcomers away when they hear they must give money. The pastor finished his teaching with a 90-day tithe challenge in which he had challenged everyone to try tithing for 90 days, and if they don't feel God sufficiently blessed them, by the end of it, they could request their money back from the church. (laughs) He encouraged even those who couldn't afford it to try testing God by participating in the challenge with the justification being that they could get a refund. Again, I think it's good to give and be generous, but this challenge seems like it was sending the wrong message and missing the point. I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Thank you. All right. What a fantastic question, first of all. Um, and, and so, so there are many different ways uh, to approach this topic. The, the, first, the first way I'm going to go is that, um, that tithing is not taught in the New Testament. And so I disagree with the idea that uh, a tenth uh, is what is required from Jesus' followers. So, yes, in Matthew 23, 23, Jesus is rebuking Jewish leaders who were commanded to tithe, and he says, you've done that, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. Um, who's not being addressed here are non-Jewish people. In fact, when there are two occasions when um, non-Jewish people are being addressed about giving. Um, now, now, no, there are more than that. Um, there's obviously uh, a passage in Second Corinthians that we could look at about joyful givers and and those sorts of things. But in Acts, there are two passages where Paul could have, um, or the early church could have required Gentiles to tithe, but instead they gave a different rule. So, for instance. Um, uh, Acts 11, during the time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and through the spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, and then here's the key phrase, as each was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So so this this idea of raising money for the Jerusalem 
church and the Jerusalem Christians becomes a huge point throughout Paul's letters and Paul's interactions with the church leaders. In other words, um, the the prophecy was there's going to be this huge famine that did indeed come true. Jerusalem was really suffering. Paul, as an ambassador of Gentiles, non-Jewish people, goes around the Gentile world um, and he raises money to help alleviate the suffering of the Jerusalem church. And so, uh, but but notice that the, the disciples decided as each one was able. Now, in 1 Corinthians, Paul um, is talking about this collection he's making. He's just spent uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this amazing chapter on how important the resurrection of Jesus is. And then he says, now, verse 16, or chapter 16, verse 1, now about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. All right, so here are two instances where you could have easily taught, and maybe the church did, maybe as a residual um, uh, effect of Judaism, maybe they taught it was 10%, but we don't have that in the scripture at all. Um, what we have is, is Paul saying, uh, set aside according to your income or in Acts, each one as they are able uh, in 2 Corinthians, the idea is that giving shouldn't be drudgery, shouldn't be guilt. It shouldn't be uh, something that's done. Uh, he, he talks about, again, the, the poverty that's facing the churches in Jerusalem. Um, you know, I'm not commanding you. Uh, but I want to test, test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. He's talking about how this incredible gift was given by the Macedonian churches. Um, so, so he says, you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, for though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor so that you, through his poverty, you might become rich. Here's my judgment. Um, last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work that your eager willingness to do so might be matched by your completion of it according to your means. Remember this later on in the chapter, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each one, and this is the key point, each one should you should you give, each one of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. So, um, and, and then, oh, I, I got to read this too. Um, you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous in every occasion and thank, and through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Now, um, so, so three passages where... Uh, it's what you've decided in your heart to give or as you were able or according to your income. All right, so here are the opportunities. Paul directly has the opportunity to teach tithing, giving 10%, but he does not. He teaches using this other standard to non-Jewish people. So the first point I would make um, in response to your question is um, the New Testament does not teach tithing to non-Jewish people. 
Um, but it, but it does teach something, um, far more radical, <laughs> which, so the good news is though it doesn't teach tithing. So a tithe challenge is a fine thing, but to say that God defines tithing in the new Testament as giving 10% to the church, you just can't say that that's just not in here. Of course, people gave to the church, but like in the book of Acts, I mean, you have so much more, you know, given than 10%, right? The idea is that God owns the whole thing, wants the whole thing, and that whatever you choose to give is simply a symbol of the idea that God um, owns it all. So in the book of Acts, earlier in the book of Acts, one of the things that Luke is very careful to note Um, is that uh, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. The idea was that this this didn't go to support the professional ministry of the church. This went to the poor. Or uh, in Acts chapter 4, it's the same thing. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Now, Now, again, this is just Luke describing what happened. And one of the things that was true of the early church was that the the poor were taken care of. And um, so there was no, so on the one hand, there's no 10% kind of requirement, but on the other hand, (laughs) because because there is the sense that you could give God 10% and then go, hey, the 90% is mine, but there is a teaching and an example in the book of Acts um, that it's all God's. And um, wh- whatever it is, I mean, it's much easier to ask, you know, when you give 10%, okay, great, that's your 10%, God, the rest is mine. It's much harder to ask, okay, God, what portion of, the, of my income do you want me to keep for me, right? I mean, that's, it's easier to ask, okay, God, what percentage should I give you uh, of my money uh, should I give you as opposed to what percentage of God's money do I keep? And and so there's this, on the one hand, tithing isn't taught, but generosity is, and generosity is a heart attitude. That's why Paul doesn't limit it to 10% because for some, 10% is nothing. That is nothing. There's no sacrifice in that. There's nothing. For others, 5%, right? Jesus even has this example of this woman giving her two last coins, these little bitty coins that were the least coins to be given at the temple. And Jesus says, she, this woman has given more than the big givers have given because she gave out of her poverty, whereas they gave out of their wealth. So this is absolutely and utterly a heart issue. And I can imagine situations where you can give 10% and still be greedy. And I can imagine situations where you don't give 10% and still be generous. So, so to park it on a hard and fast rule, um, I think is totally mistaken. It's like saying, listen, you're only married if you go on a date night every week, right? I can imagine people going on a date night every week who have a horrible marriage. And I can imagine people who don't go on date nights having a great one. So the point isn't the rule. Now, now I, I, I will say personally, like 10% is where my wife and I start. Um, of our gross income. That's where we start um, in terms of giving. And that, you know, and depending on the the needs that God brings before us or whatever else, that's certainly not where we end. Um, I'd like that to be where we end. But, um, you know, we've learned the hard way that, that money can very easily become uh, a master. And so Jesus's warnings and the, pra- the practice of um, giving were meant to dethrone this false god of money. And any of us would argue 
that um, that money holds uh, a particular and unique place in American culture, and it and it, and it displays and exudes a unique magnetic pull toward it. So that we would all think, you know, if we just had a little more money, we'd be we'd be better off. So the idea. So on the one hand, the, the specific mechanism of tithing, because tithing was used to support the priests and the Levites and the temple apparatus, well, that goes away. It's not reinforced with Gentile believers, but what is encouraged is taking care of the poor. Now, for a lot of us, taking care of the poor is done through the local church. But for a lot of churches, the money primarily is given to support the weekend service apparatus and to pay the staff. And so, uh, I think it's a very legitimate question that people should be asking about where the money goes and how much of it's spent on staffing, how much is given to the poor, how much is spent on property. And, you know, if we didn't have all of this, could we use the money to do other things? And I'm not saying owning property is bad at all or having staff is bad at all. I'm just saying um, there, there isn't a clear New Testament warrant for collecting money Um uh, to to facilitate a weekend service apparatus, there is a lot of New Testament warrant uh, for collecting money to give to the poor. There is, and then the, there's the third piece, which is that people who um, make a living uh, preaching the gospel are are due uh, payment. Paul talks about the idea that Christian workers should receive payment for their service, and that's where you get the idea of clergy. Or like we would advertise on Patreon and say, hey, this is something we're putting out. We put lots of work into it. It's worth something. Um, so there is precedent for paying people for gospel ministry. Absolutely. Um, but when people were giving to the church in the early church, it was not to support uh, this big professional thing. It was rather to, to support uh, the taking care of the poor. And this was such a unique part of Christian witness in the in the very early uh, earliest days where Rome, that we have let examples of, of Romans com- complaining, Roman emperors complaining about how well the Christians take care of not only their poor, but the Roman poor. Um, and uh, this in particular emperor is writing to a priest in the imperial cult saying, how come we don't do it as good as these guys? So first, first answer to your question, and I know this is rambling and long, but first answer to your question is, hey, I don't think tithing is taught in the New Testament, but something far more radical is, which is the cultivation of deep and abiding generosity that if God were to ask you to give more than 10%, would you be willing? Um, The second thing that's taught there is that this interplay of, yes, you can give to Christian institutions and organizations. There's examples of that. or Christian ministers and Christian ministries, examples of that, absolutely. But that, that the models we have all exist for the sake of the poor. That has to be held in tension. Right, if if we just see giving to the church as giving to support the professional apparatus and none of that money goes to the poor, then you know I would probably have some issues um, with that. Like we uh, at a church I worked at called Rock Harbor, we we had something called First Fruits, which was ten percent of all the money that came in went out the door to support ministries, to support um, nonprofits, to support. Um, uh, ways to minister to to uh, poor people, to um, take care of poverty. We had different funds, and I mean, so there there are things that churches do that um, can alleviate this. So, um, so I would disagree with your pastor over hey the ten percent mechanism. Now, for some people, 
a percentage is kind of the best way to get them going. And so maybe maybe a 5%, 10% percentage will help some people because they're like, well, how much do I give? Great. And you tell them 10% or 5%. But I, I don't think you can say, well, the Bible teaches that for Jesus followers uh, today. Now, second or third point, God clearly says you will be blessed as a result of this. Now, it is true that the blessings of salvation come to us free of charge, absolutely. But there are blessings of obedience that are conditional, absolutely. So the blessings of salvation come unconditionally, right? I I admit my need for rescue, God rescues me. And then there are these massive lists in the New Testament of the blessings that God bestows because I'm now in Christ and whatever was true of Jesus is now true of me by grace. But there are also the blessings of obedience. And um, and so generosity seems to be one of those areas where God will demonstrate blessing to you as you begin to demonstrate faith and generosity in him. Now, now it's not a formula and it's not some ironclad promise that the, that the prosperity gospel teachers um, use or make because the, they, they've, the, the prosperity gospel people view God's blessing only in material terms. And that is such, that is so false, that is so lame, that is so hollow. Um, God's blessings are much deeper, richer, truer than just that. Sometimes it includes material wealth, absolutely. Um, but, um, but it's not just limited to that. So when God says he'll bless us because we're learning generosity, that blessing can come in many forms. It's wrong to equate my giving money to, to only mean, well, then God gives me money back. And I would certainly never allow, allow Americans to define whether or not they feel sufficiently blessed by God, because what, what we'll all do is we'll spell out blessing in material terms. Hey, I gave God $200 this month and oh, here's a $400 check. Good. God doubled my money. This is not a pyramid scheme. This is not an investment plan. This is not the, the God stock market, right? This is not how this works. This is about training our hearts. Generosity is a spiritual discipline. I need it. See, God doesn't need our money. He's so clear about this. It was so clear to Israel. It's like, dude, I don't need your freaking animals, right? I've got cattle on a thousand hills. I really don't need your sacrifices. I really don't. Uh, I'm doing it not for me, but for you. So on one, on the one hand, God doesn't need our money. The church doesn't need our money. I mean, technically the church is indestructible. It's the bride of Jesus. It's wherever the people of Jesus are, there the church is. So we could sell all of our money, all of our property, get, get rid of all of our services, all of our speakers, all of our worship artists, and we'd still be the church. So the church is indestructible. So technically the church doesn't need your money. But rather, the teaching is that you and I need to be trained toward generosity. And so Paul will encourage on the first day of the week, set aside income, right? The regular habitual practice of learning generosity is absolutely critical for the American church. If, if, and and I don't remember the exact statistics on this, but if every churchgoer gave 10% of their income, like literally we could change the world. I mean, if that money went straight to uh, programs to alleviate poverty and the conditions that create poverty, um, we could change the world. Absolutely. Just all of us giving 10% of our income. So um, there is a, a very deep and real sense that the scripture's teaching on generosity, yes, is for others, no question about it, but it's also for us. It's, it's so that God 
um, reigns on the throne of our lives as opposed to the God of money, the God of success, the God of prosperity, the God of comfort, the God of convenience. So, so I applaud the, the church's effort in helping to teach people about generosity and giving them very practical ways to do that. I just wouldn't, insofar as they did this, I wouldn't put God's authority behind any specific percentage or mechanism or offer to refund money if you don't feel sufficiently blessed. I think that is a misrepresentation of passages like 2 Corinthians to talk about God blessing us back. And the Malachi passage was very much a covenantal conversation with people under his covenant. We do not exist under the old covenant. We are not uh, under the, the priesthood, the sacrificial system, the temple. So you can't just throw passages like Malachi at New Testament believers and say, well, this applies to us. It doesn't. Now, 2 Corinthians certainly does. And, and here Paul definitely says, you'll be blessed. If you, if you sow, if you plant, if you give generously, you will receive generously. Uh, and if you give sparingly, you will receive sparingly. That's true. But how you define sparingly or extravagantly <laughs> is really what is at issue. And it's certainly not uh, purely in material terms. So that is so much uh, in answer to your question. And, and again, I try not to prep too much for these because I want it to feel like Q&A. And, um, and so if they're a bit rambly, you know, I apologize. But I, I hope we kind of got at some of the um, uh, some of what you were curious about. And then there's one last thing to say, and we'll wrap it up. Um, that, that there's been so much abuse and so much false teaching around the subject of money. And you can see, right, the whole system is set up for abuse, right? Pastors who are paid by the donations of the church have a vested interest in making sure people are giving to the church, not just for budgetary reasons and building reasons, but also for salary reasons. And, and that's fine. That's fine. That's obviously permitted in the New Testament. But you can see where that can very, very get, easily get corrupted and twisted. And if you're somebody who has been hurt by this, or you're somebody who's seen this abused. I mean, I'm I'm personally so sorry that we've done such a poor job um, uh, discipling people around this, talking around this. Uh, a friend of mine who is a high net worth uh, individual, you know, shares just horror stories about how people have approached him, uh, or how, how Christians will talk about money in these settings, and um, and that's very much true. And so I'm I'm very sorry that we've done a poor job on this um, issue. And, and with the, the big explosive kind of movements uh, that are happening, the convulsions happening in the church, um, perhaps that will lead us all to greater transparency with stuff like this. So anyway, my brothers and sisters, um, appreciate you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you. And in these days, may he give you peace. Have a great day. 